Luke 9, 18 through 24. Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you so much, Tom, for reading scripture for us. Um, like Tom said, my name is uh, Paul Brandis, and I am uh, overjoyed to be with you this morning. Uh, I was supposed to be with you last week, and so appreciate uh, your grace in the adjustment of that as my family uh, and I, actually just me and my boys, uh, did come down with COVID. Uh, I'm well kind of past my, my window, but I am flying solo this morning is just the way it kind of progressed through our family. My wife, Ashley had it back in January, so she stayed healthy enough to care for all of us, uh, and all of us had mild cases, but uh, it was me first, and then our 14-month-old uh, son last, and he was still on the mend. So called Nathan uh, on Thursday, Friday of this week and said, I don't want to reschedule again, but I think I'm going to have to fly solo. So uh, it is good to be here with each and every one of you. I did bring pictures of my family, and they were here uh, with me uh, about a month ago when I preached. Uh, this is Ashley, and those are our two oldest boys, Bevan and Owen, and uh, then I've got a follow-up photo that can uh, show you baby Ethan as well. So uh, Bevan's about to turn uh, seven uh, in just uh, under a month, April 11th, and Owen just turned five, and uh, Ethan, as I've said, is, is 14 months old. So we stay busy, um, and, uh, and they're sorry that they could not uh, join me this weekend. So um, it has been uh, a, a really... Uh, wonderful and challenging few months uh, for our family as we've considered, as Tom said, uh, mutually pursuing one another, kind of exploring what God might be up to in terms of uh, the potential of me serving here at, the, at Christ Community Shawnee as the campus pastor. So uh, one of the joys and one of the ways that this has been wonderful has been to get to meet so many of you. Uh, and hear about what God is still doing uh, in the midst of, of this people and this place, uh, and that has been a deep honor and joy. So uh, currently, if you if you missed it when I preached last time or last night, uh, we had a family meeting. Uh, I'm serving as the campus chaplain at my undergrad alma mater in central Kansas, uh, Sterling College, uh, and then I'm also the associate pastor of a church plant uh, with a friend of mine from seminary, uh, and so that's what's occupying uh, my time now, uh, but we are considering uh, moving forward forward, moving back this way. I spent five years on staff at our Brookside, at Christ Community's Brookside campus from 2014 to 2019. So uh, it has been, like I said, both wonderful and challenging. And many, maybe you can resonate with that. Uh, and we are eager to see what God uh, might do moving forward. And what has been a part of this process and what will continue to be, even the undergirding of it, is really fervent prayer. Uh, and so I'd love to invite you to pray with me now as we uh, explore the passage that Tom read for us. So let's bow our heads and pray. 
Father in, in heaven, we do trust you. We do trust you, God. Uh, for all things, in all ways, we trust you. Um, we trust you for the process uh, of considering uh, my employment here as a campus pastor on all sides, for myself, for my family, for the congregation. Uh, we trust you for um, all of the different, we all bring different uh, bits of what we're struggling with into church on Sunday mornings, Lord, and we trust you with all of that. We lay it down at your feet. We ask you to give us exactly what we need, knowing that you have always done that, Lord, and we, we pray that you would do it again. You have given us so much, including your word. What a gift your word is, God. And may we study it faithfully this morning. Uh, may I diminish and may you increase. And may you be present as we know you all. Make yourself known in this, in this place, in this time. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, now I know that we're just sort of all in the process of still getting to know one another. Uh, but I do have something to confess to you this morning. I do have something to confess to you this morning. It's this. By nature, I am... I just want to let you know, I'm a deeply selfish person, a deeply self. You can ask Ashley. That's why I didn't bring her this morning. <laughs> I didn't want you to be able to confirm it, uh, but I am. It's true. Now, okay, I hope I'm in recovery mode, right, from my struggles with selfishness. I hope I'm growing, changing, getting better, but it is a daily struggle, and friends, this has been a lifelong struggle as well. This is not something that I picked up yesterday. This has been a lifelong struggle for me, and to prove it, I brought some photo evidence. You, you all didn't know, but you're going to get some pictures of me from my 12-year-old birthday party. Are you ready for that? Uh, now, I had to reach out to my mom to get these photos, and as uh, she was looking for them, she discovered uh, this, you know, kind of went back into her photo albums. Uh, so this isn't my birthday party, but it's just a photo of me from when I was 12. So we can start there. Um, you didn't know you were going to get the rec specs this morning, did you? So there we are. It's just in all of its glory. Get that picture off the screen. Okay. So I do have another one. This is from my 12-year-old birthday party. We can go to the next one. Uh, the glasses are slightly better, right? But don't miss the cake. The icing on the cake says, it's all about Paul. That's right. The theme of my 12-year-old birthday party was me. <laughs> All the way down to the icing on the cake. I told you I brought photo evidence that I'm a deeply self-centered person, right? It's all about Paul. All about Paul, I'm ashamed to say, has basically been my life motto. But here's what I'm realizing. Ever so slowly, one step forward, two steps back, but here's what I'm realizing. My life only works if I actually make it not about me. My life works best if I make it not about me. And actually, I believe that that would be true for you as well. Here it is. Life works best if you make it not about you. Life only works if you make it not about you. And, and stick with me on this, because even though it might not seem like it on the surface, I actually believe that, that this idea is a message that can bring us deep encouragement. It might not initially strike us this way, but I believe that this is good news. And I want to press in together this morning and discover how that's true. And to do so, we're going to dive into the passage that Tom read for us a few moments ago from Luke uh, chapter 9. We're going to focus most of our time on verses 21 through 24. 
Uh, And as you're turning there or turning back there, allow me to set the scene even before these verses for us. So just prior to the interaction that we read between Jesus and his disciples, uh, he had just performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is what it says in your Bibles probably, but that's the count of the men, right? So likely there was, including women and children, upwards of 15 or 20,000 people that are present for this stunning miracle where Jesus supernaturally multiplies the only food that they had available, five loaves of bread and two fish. And then, as we heard in the scripture reading, following this stunning miracle, Peter, one of Jesus' original 12 followers, he correctly confesses that Jesus is the much-anticipated, the much-awaited Savior and Deliverer that the Jewish people have been hoping for and yearning for for literally centuries. That's what's happened just before this. And imagine, if you can with me, being present for that moment. Imagine being one of the first followers of Jesus. All that you had waited for, all that you had hoped would be true. But you have given up literally everything to follow Jesus, dropped your nets, and just walked with him where he went. You did that on the Hail Mary hope that he might be, that he might just be the Savior that you've heard about your entire life. And then, right, Jesus confirms it. Peter confesses that he is the Christ of God, and Jesus says, yes, absolutely, Peter, you're right. So what are you thinking in that moment? You threw your lot in with him early. What might this mean for you, right? Oh my goodness, this is, he's the one. And and we got in early. We're one of the originals. What does it mean for you if this is the guy that eventually is going to become the king? That's your mindset And then Jesus hits you with verses 21 and 22. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is like the ultimate conversational whiplash, isn't it? You see, if you're one of Jesus' original followers, then your conception of who the Savior is going to be is not Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 22. It's actually so far from it. Your Savior is going to be one who's a conqueror, someone who's a warrior, someone who has the power to feed 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, and then someone who uses that power to overthrow your Roman overlords. But instead of that, being what Jesus tells you is going to happen, at the very moment, following the very moment when he confirms that he is the Savior, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, and here's our war plan. Here's how we're going to march into Jerusalem and take back over. He doesn't do that, does he? No. Instead, he tells you that he's going to suffer much, eventually leading even to his unjust murder. I mean, see, all time, wait, what? Moment for these guys. And actually, it gets even stranger and more difficult for them. Look back at verse 23. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, this is just a bad day at the office for these guys, right? Because Jesus' meaning in this verse would have been really, really obvious to them building off of what he has said about what his pathway in life is going to be, what Jesus is essentially saying in Luke 9.23 is this, the only way to be on my team is to go my way. And I've just told you what's going to happen to me 
And my followers ought to expect the exact same treatment, self-denial that leads to rejection, much suffering, and even death. Again, do you feel it with me? Emotional whiplash for these guys. They thought that they were going to be riding into Rome as conquerors, ushering in a Jewish kingdom with Jesus as their earthly king, but instead they find out that what awaits them in Jesus' kingdom is a cross of their own. And friends, here's the punchline for us in 2022. In the last 2,000 plus years, nothing has changed. Despite what you may have heard, despite what many churches preach, Luke 9, 23 through 24 is still an excellent summary of what it means to follow Jesus, of what it means to be a Christian, which to me begs a really important question. Why would anyone do it? Do you, know, you know what I mean? It's like Jesus, I think, would have failed his marketing class. He does not do the best job of marketing being his follower, right? Self-denial, a cross, rejection, death. It's like, wow, Jesus, what an offer. Where do I sign? Do you have a pen? Hey, Peter, do you have a pen? Grab a pen. I want to sign on this offer, right? That's not what's happening in this moment. So it leads to this really important question of why would anyone do this? And, and by the by, where's the encouragement, right? Didn't I say that I believe these verses and this message would encourage us this morning? How is that going to happen? Well, here's the thing. I think you have to look closely, but if you do, if we look closely, I believe the reasons why one might follow Jesus begin to reveal themselves. I believe that the promises pop through. You might have to look closely, but let's do that together and see if we can discover them. Now, Jesus gives us three commands in these verses. Commands that when we follow them, lead to life. Life. And not just future life, but right now life. Because remember, life only works if it's not about you. And here's what that life looks like according to Luke chapter 9. First, deny your self-control. Second, embrace your Christ-centered suffering. And third, follow Jesus wherever he goes. All three of these commands find their grounding in verse 23. I'll read that verse for us one more time. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You can see that we're tracking right along with Jesus's order. So the first command that he gives us is to deny yourself control. Now, Jesus says self-denial, deny yourself, but I think it's important to add those two qualifying words that I've tucked there at the back. Deny yourself, control, right? Because deny yourself, sure, but, but deny myself what, Jesus, right? Isn't that the question? Deny myself what? Well, as we dig further into the broader picture of what Jesus means by self-denial, by looking at his other teachings on discipleship, I think what becomes clear is that this self-denial means it refers to a total surrendering of control. I believe this is a daily process of taking the car keys of our life and handing them to Jesus instead of holding on to them ourselves. It's about walking around from the driver's side to the passenger's side, uh, getting out of the driver's seat of our life. Now, Jesus-centered self-denial is not just denying certain things, though it can involve that. And Jesus-centered self-denial is not some pathological self-denial that ends up being a warped approach to living 
an even more self-centered life, right? Where you kind of are so masochistic about it or so, um, it's so self-centered about your denial that it actually ends up becoming even more about you. And this isn't a martyr complex. It's not some version of beating yourself down. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus-centered self-denial is about a daily recognition that your life works better when you're not in control of it. Jesus-centered self-denial is about a daily recognition that your life actually runs better when you're not in control of it. And here's the reason why I think this works and why I think this is a pathway to life, to deny ourselves control. This is not exactly a cheery thought, but it is an important one. Any control that we think we have over our lives is actually an illusion. Again, not the friendliest or happiest thought, but follow it with me. Any control that we think we have over our lives is actually an illusion. Does any of us know what is going to happen in the next year? What about in the next month? What about in the next week? What about in the next hour, the next minute? And friends, have the events of the last couple of years not taught us this lesson? Before March of 2020, I actually found it a little hard to relate to this passage that we find in the book of James. I have it for you on the screen. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to do this or that city, we will spend a year there, we'll carry on business and make money. Why? Do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears only for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Again, I may have found it hard to relate to this prior to March of 2020, but does that not resonate? I mean, folks, I was supposed to preach this message to you last Sunday. Do we need more evidence of how we, th- I mean, like my plans, your plans, all of our plans, it's like James knew, right? And I've been thinking too about this, man, our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine are living this right now, aren't they? in even a, a, a much deeper and more difficult way than, than anything that I've experienced in my life. We just don't know. So we sort of build up a facade of control, but it's actually just an illusion. And I find it really interesting because uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda agrees with me. Anybody else love Hamilton as much as I do? Uh, When I dove in, I dove in deep, like listen to the soundtrack straight through, painstaking detail. There's an accompanying book that has all these amazing articles and has all of the lyrics of every song written out, and I read every single word, including all of the footnotes. Like he'll have footnotes next to, you know, in in the song lyrics, and he'll footnote, you know, this whole thing. So I dove in deep, right? And it was while I was first going through uh, the, the, the soundtrack while I was reading this book, that there's a section of one of the songs that gripped my heart and has yet to let go. Uh, I have it, I'm not going to sing it. You're, you're welcome. I won't try to rap it. <laughs> I'm going to get a scholarship to King's College. Uh, no, I won't do that. But I will read this section. Uh, this is uh, an exchange between a young Hamilton and George Washington. It's early on in the musical, and Hamilton is chomping at the bit to command troops. And this is what Washington says to Hamilton. 
I was younger than you are now when I was given my first command. I led my men straight into a massacre. I witnessed their deaths firsthand. I made every mistake and felt the shame rise in me. And even now I lie awake knowing history has its eyes on me. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story. You have no control. And friends, this is, look it up in the book. This is amazing to me. Next to that line, you have no control. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story. There's a footnote, and Lin-Manuel says, this is the truest line that I wrote in the entire musical. For him, this is a unifying theme of this entire musical, okay? So our culture is often amazing at diagnosing the problem, but terrible at prescribing the solution. So Lin-Manuel has correctly identified the problem. We have no control who lives, who dies, who tells our story. What's the solution he offers? Well, as you follow, as you trace the theme throughout the rest of it, it basically boils down to this. Live such an amazing life that someone else will carry on your story and legacy after you. That's where the whole musical crescendos to is that his wife forgives him for his infidelities and she makes her life's work about not letting the world forget how great Hamilton was. So Lin-Manuel's answer as he's constructed this story is, hey, you have no control, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, but if it's a really good story, if you live a really good life, maybe it'll be good enough that someone else will tell it after you. And I, it's like, I don't, it's like is, that, is that it? That's my response. It's like, is that all there is? Is there not a better way? Is there not a better way than that? It's so unsatisfying. It's like, I was with you, man. You're right. We have no control who lives, who dies, who tells our story. And 2,000 years, right, before Lin-Manuel, 1,800 years before Hamilton, Jesus says, ah, there is a better way. There is a better way. Deny your self-control. You don't have it anyway. I have it. Deny your self-control let me take the wheel. But that's not all. That's command number one. Deny yourself control. Command number two, embrace your Christ-centered suffering. Embrace your Christ-centered suffering. Now, this is drawn from Jesus' call to the disciples to take up their cross daily. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. It's hard for us to conceptualize since the cross means something different to most of us, but we cannot, folks, we cannot overlook what this command would have meant to Jesus' original audience. It would have been horrifyingly shocking. It actually would have been deeply offensive. And in asking them to pick up their cross, it would have been utterly terrifying. Because you see, in Jesus' day, crosses were not beautiful gold necklaces that hung from our necks. No, in Jesus' day, they were rugged trees that were strapped together so that ashamed and mocked prisoners could hang from them until they strangled themselves to death or asphyxiated to death. And this, this is the metaphor that Jesus chooses for what it means, for what it's going to be like to follow him. Now, part of it 
why he did that and chose this is, I think, because Jesus knew that he was going to go that way. But I actually think it cuts even deeper than that. Because you see, the cross was not just a way to execute someone. It actually was an incredibly inefficient way to do that, right? It's an inefficient way to kill someone. What was happening when someone received crucifixion as their death sentence was that they were also receiving the sentence of being publicly shamed in the midst of that. It was not just a way to inflict physical pain and anguish, but mental, emotional, and spiritual pain and anguishes as well. And it's here in this place of the invitation, the command from Jesus to bear our cross that we start to see how high the cost is of following Jesus. Because, of course, self-denial is costly. But when you match self-denial, Jesus says, deny yourself, when you match that with the command to bear our cross, take up your cross daily, the public shame of that, the anguish of that, when you match those things together, you start to see how Jesus is raising the stakes of what it's going to cost to follow Him. So much so that I think there's really only one word that captures the invitation, and it's this, it's, it's suffering. What we see in Jesus' call to bear our crosses daily is that suffering is baked into the cake of what it means to be one of Jesus' followers. It's baked into the cake. Now please hear me clearly this morning. I in no way want to minimize the suffering of any person in this room. Neither does Jesus. Embracing our suffering does not mean celebrating our suffering. It does not mean reveling in our suffering. Not at all. But I do think it's possible if we search closely enough to see occasionally what Jesus that come in the midst of suffering. And one person who I think demonstrates this is Johnny Erickson Tata, a remarkable example of this. At the age of 17, Johnny had an accident that caused her to become a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. She's been in a wheelchair, as you can see here in the photo, from that moment on, and she has experienced in her life incredible suffering, far beyond any journey that I've walked. But look closely here with me. I want you to make sure we don't miss something about suffering because you see there's different types of suffering, different kinds of suffering. And if we confuse them, it can actually be really dangerous. Uh, Joni's paralyzation is what I might call general brokenness suffering. I don't believe that it's the result of her sin, which is a warped idea that some people do subscribe to. I don't believe that. But rather, I think that this type of suffering exists because the reality is that our world is a deeply broken place. And tragedies like Joni's accident, they happen. It doesn't do us any good to deny that they happen, right? We have to sort of look at them in the fullness and admit it, it ought not be this way, but it is. This is general brokenness suffering. She's suffering very clearly as a result of her paralyzation. She's also a cancer survivor, by the way. Another example of general brokenness suffering that she has experienced in her life. General brokenness suffering. But there's another layer to it, and I don't want us to miss this. Because you see, in addition to wrestling with her disability, her physical disability, Johnny also has to contend with the difficult truth that God has, for whatever reason, in his infinite wisdom, decided not to heal her. Track along with me on that. 
Because it gets to the bit in the parentheses, right? Embrace your Christ-centered suffering. Jesus, in inviting us to pick up our cross, is inviting us actually to a suffering that is unique to those who follow him. Because everyone in the world, follower of Jesus or not, experiences general brokenness suffering. But Jesus is saying there actually is going to be a unique suffering that is just for my followers. And this takes different forms. But watch with me. Watch the form that it takes for Joni, right? As a follower of Jesus, she believes that God is the ultimate capital H healer. Does she not? She believes that. Of course she does. So she believes that God could heal her. And yet, for whatever reason, in his infinite and mysterious plan, he has chosen not to. That is Christ-centered suffering. It's the unique cross to bear for those of us who choose to follow Jesus. And friends, Johnny bears this cross really, really well. One time she said, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Another time she said, I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. I don't know that I have faith like that. But, but Johnny has faith like that. And, and it encourages me. It emboldens me. It stirs up my heart to want to have faith like that. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. Now, she's not saying that her journey is easy. She is beautifully embracing her Christ-centered suffering. She is surrendering it to the Lord. She is turning it over to Him. Where can we learn from her example? For us, Christ-centered suffering happens at work. It happens at schools. It happens in our homes for some of us, in our families. It happens in our hearts and minds as it does for Johnny as she wrestles with the fact that God has chosen not to heal her. And wherever we encounter it, wherever we encounter Christ-centered suffering. Our call from Jesus, our invitation from Jesus is to embrace it, not necessarily celebrate it, don't revel in it, but embrace it, just like, she, just like he did. Jesus is not saying this is going to be easy. Jesus never once minimizes the challenge and the pain of it, but he is straightforward and honest about the pathway that he's going to walk and the one that he is saying, hey, come behind me and walk in this way. Embrace your Christ-centered suffering. Command number two. There's one more, one more. Follow Jesus wherever he goes. Or in Jesus' own words, right, what does he say? Follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Follow Jesus wherever he goes. And really, this third command is an extension. It's the result of the first two. If you deny yourself, control. And if you embrace your Christ-centered suffering, congratulations, you're following Jesus. That's sort of the flow of this, right? It's the result of what happens when we deny our self-control, when we start picking up our cross and, and, and bearing it every day. But the trick, the trick Jesus says, follow me. The trick is we must follow him wherever he goes. Uh, that's not just quite as easy, is it? Especially since he's already made it clear that his way is the way of the cross. So it's safe to assume that if you follow him, he's going to lead 
to some difficult places. Safe to assume that. The question is, are you going to go with him? Are you going to go with him? A couple of years ago, uh, our son Bevan, he's the, the big one with the, uh, the Blackhawks cap on. Our son Bevan, he, he looked up, and my wife Ashley, one of these moments, right? He looked up at her, no joke, this really happened, and he said, Mom, I'll follow you wherever you go. That's not a big enough awe, everybody. I'll follow you wherever you go. Come on, aw, right? Uh, but there's always a follow-up, right, with kiddos. He pauses. It's like the thought hits him, and he goes, except to the car wash, <laughs> which is like, right, yes, the car wash is terrifying. I totally agree with you, Bevan. You're 100% right. No worries about that, man, right? But friends, how often do we do the exact same thing? Hey, Jesus, it's Paul here. I'll follow you wherever you go, except to the car wash. Where's your car wash? You know what I mean, right? Where's the spot in your life and your heart and your mind that you're resisting Jesus' call to follow him? You probably don't have to think about it too long. Friends, we do not get to negotiate. We don't get to negotiate. That's not part of the deal, right? We must follow Jesus Wherever he goes, the command to follow Jesus, just like the commands to deny ourselves and bear our cross, they are all or nothing. So again, where is your car wash? Where are you resisting Jesus' leading in your life? Where do you need to submit to him and begin to follow him? So, but here's kind of the beautiful part of this passage. We've spent the vast majority of our time just in Luke 9.23. So let's not forget together, though, what Jesus tells us in Luke 9.24. I don't think he abandons us in the challenge of denying our self-control, of picking up our cross, of following him even into the difficult places. He doesn't abandon us. He reminds us why we should do all of this. Like I said at the beginning, the, the beautiful promises pop through. Here's Luke 9, 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, what happens? What happens if you lose your life for his sake? You actually end up saving it. The punchline is this, friends, don't miss it. Jesus' promises us, what he gives us in Luke 9, 24 is a beautiful and needed promise that what looks like death, self-denial looks like death, the cross is death. Following Jesus into difficult places feels like death, but Jesus promises what looks like death actually leads to life. Yes, following Jesus is difficult. Yes, embracing our Christ-centered suffering is a task of enormous proportions. Yes, self-denial of control is terrifying. And yes, the world believes that this way of life built around Jesus, they believe that to be death. The world perceives that the Jesus way of life is empty, void, and bankrupt. But church, they're wrong. They're wrong. And Jesus has promised us that they're wrong. The world's way is empty, void, and bankrupt. The world way, it looks like life, but it leads to death. It's actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus' kingdom, it's upside down. 
It doesn't make a lot of sense on first view, but it is the only one that is built to last. Jesus said these words at the feet of the Roman Empire, which seemed like a kingdom that was never going away. It seemed like it was never going away. It seemed like it was going to be there forever. And it too had a sun that set. Jesus' kingdom is upside down, but it is the only one that will never have the sun set on it. It looks like death, living the Jesus life, but it is actually life. And friends, here's, here's how we know, right? Because he gives us the promise in Luke 9, 24. He says, hey, look, this is, it seems on the face of it like death, but it actually is life. But here's how we know. Here's how we know we can trust Jesus and trust this promise. When he walked to his death, when he submitted himself to death, it didn't stick. <laughs> the tomb is empty, folks, right? The grave is empty. He walked out three days later, and that is how we know my way looks like death, but it actually is life. And do you catch this, right? Jesus doesn't say, go and die. He says, come with me and die. Jesus will never tell you to go somewhere that he hasn't already gone ahead of you. And so just look at him. Watch him walk this pathway of denying control. Watch him in the garden embracing his Christ-centered suffering. Watch him pick up his cross and carry it until he collapses from exhaustion. Watch him stretch out his hands and be nailed to that cross. Watch him be buried in that grave. And then his buried body began to breathe. Because death couldn't hold him. And what looked like death was actually life. And he says, walk my way. I will never tell you to go somewhere that I have never gone. And he went that way. He went that way. Listen, friends, do you want your life to work? Make it not about you. Make it about Jesus. Walk his way. Because what looks like death is actually life. Deny yourself control. Embrace your Christ-centered suffering. And follow Jesus wherever he goes, because life only works when it's not about you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the promise of Jesus in Luke 9, 24, that whoever loses his life for your sake will save it, will find it, will discover it. Thank you for that promise, and thank you, thank you for the reality of how we know we can trust that promise, because you walked this way before us. You showed us how to do it, and then you showed us that death wasn't going to have any hold on you, which means that as your followers, death isn't going to have any hold on us, ultimately. Death is still a monster. It still is the, the greatest is in our world. It ought not be, but it is. But we know how the story ends, and we know that the grave couldn't hold you, and we know that the grave isn't going to hold us, because the ultimate good news of your resurrection is that it's not the only one. So, Father, may we have what it takes by way of our trust in you and by way of the power of your spirit to walk the Jesus way, to follow your son Jesus wherever he goes. May we have that. And Lord, as we, as we stand here in a moment and continue to worship you through song, may it encourage and embolden our hearts uh, to do what we've talked about here, to follow your son Jesus wherever he goes. In his name we pray, amen.